Well, we read at the end of Genesis chapter 1 that the Lord, at the end of the sixth day of the creation week, he looked at everything that he had made, and he said it was very good. Not okay, not good, but very good. And do you ever look around at what's going on in the world and ask yourself, what happened? What went wrong? Well, Louis Burkhoff, an American theologian, writes in his Systematic Theology textbook in the chapter on sin the following. He writes there, he says, Sin is one of the saddest, but also one of the most common phenomena of human life. It is part of the common experience of mankind and therefore forces itself upon the attention of all those who do not deliberately close their eyes to the realities of human life. He continues on about mankind, how mankind has tried to deal with the issue of sin by fighting the effects of sin, by applying external corrective measures. He writes again, But as time goes on, and all measures of external reform fail, and the suppression of one evil merely serves to release another, such persons are inevitably disillusioned. They become conscious of the fact that they have merely been fighting the symptoms of some deep-seated malady, and that they are confronted not merely with the problem of sins, that is, of separate sinful deeds, but with the much greater and deeper problem of sin, of an evil that is inherent in human nature. I'd say Burkhoff has summarized the problem of sin quite well. And speaking from my own experience, before God saved me, sin was a, had a dominating effect in, in my own life. It had, in fact, it was not only dominating, it was an enslaving force in my life. As I began to, to examine my own life as an unbeliever before God saved me, he took me through a process where I began to become self-aware of my actions. And, there was, and, I, and I came to realizing there was something deep in, deep, deeply, deeply disturbingly disturbing about myself. There, there, was, something, there was something wrong. There was something wrong in, in, my, in my nature. And it wasn't, just acts, it wasn't just individual acts of sin that I was committing. My, ent- my entire life was directed away from God. You know, I was an autonomous individual. In morality, what was right and what was wrong was determined by me. In fact, everything was permissible for me. It was all determined by me. Well, you may be thinking, that's all very well and good, but do we, do we have to talk about sin? It's kind of depressing when you, when you talk about it, and you see what's going on in the world. Do we have to talk about it? And I'd say that, that the answer is yes. And I'm going to give you three reasons before we get into the text. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think it's important that we talk about the doctrine of sin. First, sin is a gospel issue. It is critical. It is critical to the gospel. Biblical Christianity confronts sin and it offers grace. And there can be no repentance until we understand what sin is and our sins are exposed. Consequently, we cannot be recipients of God's grace and mercy unless we understand that we are sinners. And so we need to understand the the sinful condition. We need to comprehend that before we can acknowledge our sinfulness and before we can, as I said, be recipients of God's grace and mercy. You know, oftentimes in the, the church and their evangel- evangelistic efforts, they just want to talk about grace and mercy and the love of Christ without, without talking about sin. But the gospel is repenting. The gospel is repenting and turning away from our sins and turning to Jesus Christ. And without understanding what sin is, there can be no repentance and therefore no grace and mercy that is found in the gospel. So it is a gospel issue. Sin is a gospel issue and it's critical that we understand that. And we live in a world that is is losing sight of what sin is. When the culture turns from God and suppresses the truth of God at every turn, then the concept of sin begins to disappear from our culture. In an article by author Peter Barnes titled, What? Me? A Sinner? 
New Testament scholar D.A. Carson is quoted as saying that the most frustrating aspect of doing evangelism on university campuses today is that students generally have no concept of sin. He said, quote, they know how to sin well enough, but they have no idea what constitutes sin. And the world wants to do away with the concept, with the idea of sinful behavior by, by normalizing it, by, by remaining, by renaming be renaming sinful behavior as something other than sin. We see that all around us. For example, anger in children is, all, all, is, is frequently manifested as, as disobedience, defiance, arguing, not following the rules. And biblically, we identify these as sinful behaviors and attitudes. And we work to address those from a Christian worldview perspective, from followers of Jesus Christ. We work to address those sinful attitudes in our children by following the admissions of the Lord. And we confront that. And, and, and we talk about salvation in Jesus Christ. It's opportunities to share, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to our children and those around us. But in the mental health profession, sinful behavior such as anger and the behavior manifested by sinfully indulging this emotion, it's been relabeled as disruptive behavior disorder. And so if in, 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 in institutions, in school systems, in, in, the, in the culture at large, if a young person displays reoccurring symptoms of arguing freely, frequently with adults or losing his temper or having temper tantrums, they, are, they don't follow the rules, he's often diagnosed with a disorder called opposition-defiant disorder. And treatment, treatment for this disorder includes behavior modification, both for the patient and for the adult. For example, children can learn how to, to take five deep breaths before they act. They can think before they act, they can think about the three choices that they might have and how to respond to them. A teacher can change her behavior as well. Teachers can learn how to manage that disorder by compromising with the student. They can learn how to negotiate with the student. And they can learn how to avoid these confrontations in the first place. And if the patient does not respond to the treatment, more aggressive treatment protocols can include psychotropic drugs. You can read all about these disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders published by the American Psychiatric Association. So that's an example of how we rename, how the world is renaming sin. Another example of renaming sin is to temper its impact on the human psyche. And we don't hear much more about people committing adultery, but we do hear about people having an affair. Fornication or sexual intimacy outside of marriage clearly, is clearly prohibited by Scripture. But in the world's eyes, it's considered a normal, healthy activity, even between teenagers, as long as both are mature, consenting adults. And they take appropriate precautions, so an unwanted pregnancy does not occur. You know, and other sins have, have been considered morally bad, that have been considered morally bad or are now considered morally good. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes on his blog in an article concerning the sexual revolution taking place across this nation, really across the globe, across Western civilization. He writes this about homosexual behavior. Homosexuality has a strange power to turn the moral tables. And so what was previously understood to be immoral is now celebrated as a moral good. As a result, the Christian church's historic teachings on homosexuality, shared by the vast majority of the citizens of the West until very recently, is now understood to be a relic of the past and a repressive force that must be eradicated. You know, the tip of the spear in our day leading to the continued destruction of Western civilization is transgenderism. You, can't, you, can't, you cannot not read about it if you pick up a newspaper and what's happening. And the governor of South Dakota, you may have read this, the governor of South Dakota recently signed a bill that, that bans trans women, that is men, from participating in women's sports. And I'm thankful that the governor signed that bill. Of course, the bill has been heavily criticized as discriminatory and hateful by most media outlets. 
And the governor has defended it, her signing of this bill, the governor has defended it by saying it's about fairness. Well, that's certainly true. It's certainly true it is about fairness. But the deeper, the deeper problem of transgenderism is in a direct frontal attack on creational norms that God has given to humanity. It's sin at the deepest level. And if the church loses sight of what sin is, we're no longer going to be the salt of the earth. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So retaining, retaining a biblical understanding of sin is critical to the church, to proclaiming the gospel. It is a gospel issue. The world we live in works hard at suppressing the truth and rejecting a Christian understanding of sin. And so a second reason I believe it is good to review the doctrine of sin occasionally is that this normalizing of sin by the world can have a desensitizing effect on us as believers. You know, on, a, on, a, on a doctrinal level, we have a proper understanding of sin, and we confess that we are sinners that are saved by grace. But on a personal level, we have a tendency to excuse, overlook, and rationalize our own sin. The late Jerry Bridges, in his book titled Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, writes in the preface, The motivation for this book stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. He writes that while the idea of sin has not disappeared from conservative evangelical churches, there is a tendency to take the idea of sin and deflect it to those outside our circles and churches. I have a tendency to do that myself. I have to watch that. Always pointing the finger at what's going on in the world. Yet, I need to be concerned with my, my own sin. Jerry Bridges, uh, Bridges writes again, he says, And sad to say, the concept of sin among many conservative Christians has been essentially redefined to cover only the obviously gross sins of our society. The result, then, is that for many morally upright believers, the awareness of personal sin has effectively disappeared from their consciences. He goes on. He says, It's easy for us to condemn, condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins of gossip, pride, envy, bitterness, and lust, or even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. I think the emphasis on biblical counseling in many Reformed evangelical churches has brought, brought back an, an emphasis on personal sanctification and holiness, and this is good. And it's frequently with these types of sins, the one Bridges calls respectable sins that we often find in biblical counseling conferences. So that's, that's good. It's an emphasis on our own personal sins and to be the light of the world, to sanctify us. And the Apostle Peter writes, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So we as a church need to grow in our understanding of what sin is so that God can continue to sanctify us as a body of Christ and that we may glorify him. We must not rationalize our sins as being minimal, minimalistic compared to what's going on in the world at large. We cannot do that. And then the third reason, the third reason why we not, not need to talk about sin is we need to grow in our conviction of the seriousness of sin. And when we grow in our understanding of what sin is and the conviction that sin is an affront to God, we grow in our thankfulness and our gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so growing in our attitude towards Christ and our love to toward Christ motivates us to be more like Jesus. A deeper understanding of sin and the gospel is, is instrumental to our sanctification. Okay, so these are, th these are three, three, three reasons why 
I think it's important to talk about sin. So, you know, there's a lot we could talk about this morning. We have a limited amount of time, so we're just going to do an overview of the topic of sin. In one sense, the topic of sin is like the topic of godliness, and that you can look at it from many different perspectives. And so this morning, we're going to do a flyover from 38,000 feet. We're only going to touch on major themes, not going very deep, kind of like looking outside your airplane's window and seeing the mountaintops peeking through the clouds as you fly over. Okay, well, how does the Bible look at sin? How does the Bible look at sin? Well, the biblical testimony for sin is, is massive and it's overwhelming. One summary I looked at that had cataloged the terms used to describe, to describe sin included 28 word families used 2,800 times. And it was not even exhaustive. It only included the major, major word groups and included terms not including the specific sins like stealing, coveting, adultery, fornication, lying, and so forth. Also something that is interesting but is not unexpected is that there is a, you know, a progressive disclosure of sin as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. As you work your way through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a, a, a progressive disclosure of what sin is. And the progressive nature of the revelation means God keeps adding terms to disclose the nature of sin. For example, in the New Testament, there are at least 13 new word families that are added to enhance the biblical picture of human sinfulness. You know, just in the, in the Old Testament, there's three distinct words, Hebrew words that are commonly used or com commonly associated with the concept of sin. You know, one word depicts a sense of missing the mark or a failing to achieve one's intentions. A second word carries with it the idea of something that incurs guilt because of disobedience to God's commands. And thirdly, there's a word that conveys the idea or sense of deliberate and rebellious, rebellious acts, actions toward God. And in the New Testament, the primary Greek word used for sin is hamartia. It has a wide range of meanings such as failing, disobedience, and rebellion. And it can be used to translate any of the three distinct Hebrew words I just mentioned, the words that carry one of those three meanings. And so, Scripture presents sin as a, mor a moral failure. So we're looking at how sin misrepresents, we're looking at uh, how sin misrepresents God. That's what we're looking at now. We're looking at how sin misrepresents God. And so, Scripture presents sin as a moral failure, as mankind missing the mark. We miss the spiritual bullseye of what God designed man to be. Scripture depicts sin as dishonoring and misrepresenting God. An example of a, in the New Testament of this, of this is exemplified in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This idea of misrepresenting God is very closely aligned with the biblical idea that mankind is the image of God, given in Genesis 1.27 where we read, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. So God made us to furnish, God made us to furnish a living representation of himself. Sin, however, distorts the image of God in us. Many people have tried to convey this idea by using the example of a, of a carnival mirror something called the distortion mirror because the image that it reflects of you is all distorted. If you stand in front of a, a carnival mirror, the image that is reflected of you is completely distorted with elongated arms, a big head, really short or really tall. Because of sin, the image of God that we project to others is distorted and it's misshapen, very much unlike, very much unlike, very unlike God's image. And as we, as we misrepresent God, we also bring shame and dishonor to him. And after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they were ashamed. And they attempted to hide from God, knowing that they had brought dishonor to him. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, but I had rejected the gospel. When I was a young man in college, I was immersed in a, a sinful lifestyle. 
And as I spiraled out of control, there was an increasing amount of deceitfulness on my part to hide my sinful behavior from my family. A life of lies, and then another layer of lies to cover up the first layer of lies. I was immersed in lies. I couldn't speak anything without lying. And I was always confused. I was always afraid. I was always afraid that someone was going to find me out for who I really was. And my deceitfulness came to a head one semester when I was arrested for driving while intoxicated. And I spent a night in the, in the county jail. And I had a great deal of respect for my father. And I knew I was misrepresenting to him and to others who I was. Most people in my little hometown thought I was a, you know, quote-unquote, a good kid. Came from an outstanding Christian family, that type of thing. And I knew as I sat in that county jail contemplating what had happened to me, I knew that I was misrepresenting to others what I had been taught by my father. And then I knew my deceitfulness was going to be exposed. And before my parents found out, I wrote a letter to my father confessing to him what had happened and that I was no no longer worthy to be called his son. And I told him, it was in November when I wrote this, and I told him, I'm not coming home from Christmas, and you'll never see me again. I was unworthy to be called his son. Thankfully, thankfully that didn't happen, and the Lord used that situation to help me to understand the gospel later in life. But I was misrepresenting my father. And just as I brought shame on my parents for misrepresenting what I knew to be right, in a, simple, in a similar manner, sin represents God as we have been made in the image of God. Sin distorts what God has called us to do. So sin misrepresents God, and it brings him dishonor. But sin, so sin misrepresents God, but it, sin is also lawlessness. That's the second way that Scripture looks at sin. It is lawlessness. Scripture makes clear that when we sin, we are sinning against God. When we sin, we are missing God's intent for mankind, and so our sin is against God. And often when we sin, it is against mankind. But the predominance of scriptural evidence pictures sin as sinning against God. Scripture depicts sin as a trespass against God that is a punishable offense. We see that in 1 John 3, 4, where John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Titus 2.14, where, speaking of Christ, we read, "...who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness." And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So the apostle John said sin is lawlessness. It is a, it is a failure. It's a failure to conform to the law of God. But it's not just individual acts, such as stealing or lying or committing murder. It's committing murder. It's also attitudes, contrary to the attitudes that God requires of us. We see this clearly in the Tenth Commandment that prohibits coveting our neighbor's house, our neighbor's wife, or his servants, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything, the Scripture says, that is your neighbor's. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus prohibits sinful attitudes, such as anger, and says that anyone who looks, on at, a, looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In Galatians 5.19, Paul lists works of the flesh. In the list are attitudes such as jealousy and envy. And Paul says people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So both the apostle Paul and John say sin is lawlessness. And because it's God's law being transgressed, it is an affront. It is an affront to God. This is made even more clear by what David says about his sin in Psalm 51. And if you recall Psalm 51, it was written by David after Nathan the prophet had confronted him about his sins that included adultery with Bathsheba. And he was trying to cover up that sin by bringing Uriah in from the battlefield to lay with Bathsheba. And when that failed, 
he defies the more sinister plan by placing Uriah on the front lines and having his military commander purposely fall back, exposing Uriah to the enemy. And he was killed in battle. And after being confronted by Nathan, the prophet David penned Psalm 51. And in verse 4, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David had committed multiple sins against multiple people, but he knew ultimately it was God that he had sinned against. I think we have enough information here to provide a, 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 a definition for sin. Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines sin like this. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So this is a high standard. It's a very high standard. And when we fail to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature, or deed, we have sinned. And, it, and it's a sin. It's a sin committed against God. Sin is a big deal. And if we covet the materials our neighbors have, if we harbor jealousy against our brother, if we are resentful against a brother for something they said or did to us, if we give false testimony by being less than forthcoming with our answers, if we desire sinful things or if we are motivated by selfish ambition, if we do these things, we have sinned against God. And we may think that these attitudes don't hurt anyone, and so there's no harm in doing them. But God says they are sinful attitudes, and if we hold them, we have sinned against Him. So it, sin impacts us all. You know, I've been guilty of holding these sinful attitudes in my heart. And if we don't confess them, they will manifest ourselves in our behavior, in our actions, in our desires, and what we pursue on this earth. When the Holy Spirit convicts me, when the indwelling Holy Spirit convicts me, when the, when he, when the Holy Spirit convicts any of us, we need to confess it to the Lord and ask His forgiveness. It's in times like these that we should give thanks to the Lord for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel covers all of these sins, past, present, and future. Praise God for the gospel. Well, what are, let's, let's talk about the characteristics of sin. What are the characteristics of sin? Well, I think there's three important characteristics of sin. And that is that sin is alienating, it's enslaving, and it's deceitful. First sin is alienating. Isaiah 59, 2-3 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. In Psalm 68, verses 18 and 19, we read there, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So sin alienates and separates us from God. God does not listen to our prayers when we cherish sinful thoughts and attitudes in our heart. And the second characteristic of sin is it is enslaving. John says in 8.34, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus says in 8, John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the sin hardens our heart. We become entangled in it. And it's difficult to break away from it. And then finally, sin is deceitful. We can often identify sin in others quite well, but it's more difficult to see sin in ourselves. In Hebrews 3, verses 13 and 14, we read there, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a present danger of sin, and, and, and thus it's deceitfulness. It blinds us. It says it's something it is not. We can rationalize and justify our sins so easily. We say only this once. We think we can get away with it. And when we indulge sin, it hardens our heart and it makes it that much easier to do it again. And that passage from Hebrews, it lists a preventative 
strategy for those in Christ against not letting sin harden our hearts. And that is we are to exhort everyone, every day, exhort us. We're supposed to exhort each other. As long as it is called today, the writer says. So we're, long, we're to do this as long as we live on earth. We see that sin offends God. It is an offense against God. It is alienating, it is enslaving, and it is deceitful. And so again, we come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're in Christ this morning, we give thanks to what God has done in the cross. And we read, Jesus says, or we read in Matthew, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ rescues us from our sins. The power of sin is broken by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is not just for sinners. It is for believers. So we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And when we sin, we need to repent of it and ask the Lord to forgive us. And when he does, he cleanses, us, cleanses our hearts from all unrighteousness. That Hebrew passage I read earlier that admonishes us to exhort one another every day, this is sort of the preventative remedy against letting sin harden our hearts. And so reading through the one another commands in the back of our church's directory will familiarize us with those. And, they, and we, can, we can practice those with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we practice these, we increase our fellowship with one another and we increase our accountability with each other as well. What is the extent of sin in the world? What is the extent of sin in the world? Oh, it's, it's pervasive. It is pervasive. It is so pervasive, and its effect on mankind is so great. Christians, and even, the, even those who are not believers, they know something is wrong with the world. They know that. And there are many passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about the universality of sin. And Paul captures it well in the Ephesians when he, says, when he writes there. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then James says in James 2, James 3, he says there, he says, we all stumble in many ways. That's pervasive. Where does it come from? Why is sin so pervasive? Well, we begin our discussion by going to Romans chapter 5. In verses 12 through 21, Paul expounds on Adam's sin and its effect on mankind. Our main text here is Romans 5.12. and we read there, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And theologians refer to the teaching that comes out of this text is original sin. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book, he uses the terms inherited guilt, inherited corruption to make sure that when we talk about original sin, we understand that we are not referring to Adam's sin, but to our inherited guilt and our inherited corruption. And the Romans, Romans passage tells us that we sinned in Adam and that we are counted guilty. We inherited guilt because of Adam's sin. And that we have a sinful nature because we inherited corruption because of Adam's sin. I like what John Piper writes about original sin. He says, The guilt of Adam's sin is credited not just to Adam himself, but to us all. We are regarded as having sinned in Adam and hence as deserving of that same punishment. This is imputed sin, he says. And then about our inherited corruption... Piper writes, As a result of Adam's sin, we all enter the world with a fallen nature. This is original sin. The sinful tendencies, desires, and dispositions in our hearts with which we are all born. 
Thus, original sin is something inherent in us. It is a morally ruined character. And that's why David writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We don't need to learn sinful behavior. We have a sinful nature at birth. And this morally ruined character extends through our entire being, our minds, our wills, our affections, and our conscience. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, he says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. That's what Jesus says. And it is this inherited corruption of our heart that we are born with that gives rise to actual sin that manifests itself proceeding out of our heart. So the, the better we understand sin, the more, again, the more we will both thank, be thankful for the gospel and the more we will grow in our love for what Christ has done for us, motivating us and giving us a desire to be obedient to the Lord. And Ezekiel prophesied that someday the people of God would get a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, we read there, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And this is what takes place at salvation. Paul writes about this to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So those that are in Christ, we give thanks this morning to the Lord for that new heart that he has given us, a heart of flesh that is receptive, receptive to the things of the, of the Lord. When we hear the word of God preached, we allow it to have its way in our life. We allow it to sanctify us, to transform us, to, to think differently, to have our thoughts and our desires and our deeds align more closely to Jesus. What are the consequences of sin? And when I say as a term, when I use the word consequences, it implies it's rather unpleasant. And the biblical testimony for the consequences of sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is extensive. And similar to what was said about the progressive disclosure of sin as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so it is with the biblical witness for the consequences of sin. Furthermore, those people in Adam and those in Christ have a radically different relationship to God. As those in Adam are spiritual children of the devil, those in Christ are God's spiritual ch children and his adopted sons. Let's summarize the consequences of sin for those in Adam. Our epitomizing text is Romans 6.23. You've all read this. The wages of sin is death. And if we look at the Old Testament testimony, we see Scripture Stressing the suffering and physical death that God inflicts on sinners as a consequence of their sin. In the Old Testament, we see featured sort of the temporal consequences of sin. And some highlights of this include the flood, the overflow of Sodom, the plagues on Egypt, the destruction of Canaan, the defeat of Israel's enemies, the curses of the Old Covenant, and God's judgment of the nations. Then moving into the New Testament, we see God's spiritual judgments in spiritual death and in eternal punishment. And we see God inflicting spiritual death on everyone living in a state of sin. In John 5.24 we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So we see God's spiritual judgment of eternal punishment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We read there, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And Paul writes about the consequences of sin in Romans. That's the text that Paul read this morning. I'll read it again, starting with verse 18. Romans chapter 1, we read there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What does it look like for nations that no longer acknowledge God? They can no longer longer govern themselves. We see that all around us. In the Parliament of Canada, our neighbors to the north, they unanimously passed in January a bill. It's called Bill C-4. You might have heard about it. And it bans conversion therapy. And in the preamble to that bill, It refers to the creational norms, heterosexual norms, cisgender norms, which are those individuals that have a gender that matches their sex, their biological sex. It refers to that in the preamble of this bill, C4, as myths, referring to creational norms that God gives humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. It refers to that in the bill as myths. For all practical purposes, it was going to criminalize the gospel if you share the gospel in full. Terrible, terrible bill. You know, considering our own nation, and if you look at the nations on earth, we have had a spectacular rise. And our nation has been in decline since the middle of the 19th century. We have incrementally, over the last century, rejected a biblical worldview, not acknowledging that there is a God in heaven. The Christian worldview has had a tremendous influence on our government, our justice system, our economic theories, our educational systems, technology and science, and these have all now been corrupted to a great degree because they all at their foundation reject that there is a God in heaven. They self-consciously refuse to acknowledge that there is a creator. And rather than be governed by a lawgiver, our God in heaven, they are now the lawgiver and they now determine what is right and wrong. And it's having a detrimental effect in all these institutions. You know, and what, what is happening in the United States when a nation that no longer acknowledges God, what, what, what does that look like? To me, it was epitomized about a week ago on a newscast I was watching. It was a conservative news outlet. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it was reporting about the male swimmer that's com- competing on the women's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania. And that individual, his name is Will Thomas, and he claims to be a female. And so he now goes by the name Leah Thomas, and he's been swimming, he's a, ma- he's a man, he's been swimming on the University of, University of Pennsylvania's women's swim team. And so this journalist wanted to, get some, wanted to get some conservative views on what conservatives thought of that. And so the the, inter- the, the journalist, he was interviewing Bruce Jenner, who now goes by the name of Caitlyn Jenner. And he's asking his thoughts on this male swimming on the women's swim team. Well, Bruce Jenner, Jenner he's, a, he's a man, but he claims to be a woman. And he said it was wrong. It was wrong for Will Thomas to be swimming on the women's swim team. And the journalist was referring to both Bruce Jenner 
And Will Thomas by their female names and the pronouns of she. This thinking is, comes about by darkened hearts. And it's, it's, all, it's all around us. It's all around us. That's the consequences of sin for a nation that have rejected and do not acknowledge God as their creator, but worship the created things of this world. You know, and heading a little closer to home in West Lafayette, Indiana, just, just last week, the city council of West Lafayette, West Lafayette is discussing a, a city ordinance that criminalizes conversion therapy. And it has in its hairs the faith biblical counseling ministry, which many of us have been there to, to have biblical counseling training. So they are in the crosshairs of this ordinance. This is what it looks like. When a nation no longer acknowledges God and in fact goes to great lengths to suppress the truth of God. They can't bear their own sinfulness, so they write and pass laws that normalize and promote sin. And where does that leave us? Well, give thanks to God for the gift of salvation and the indwelling Holy Spirit that anchors us to the word of God. And we know, we understand when we hear God's word that we're hearing supernatural revelation. And as the sons of Adam are spiritual children of the devil, those in Christ are spiritual children of our Heavenly Father and adopted sons who are not under God's wrath. And so Paul says in Romans 8, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Praise God for these words that Paul has written. And then he writes in Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have, we have eternal life. And Paul, again, writing to the Roman church, writes in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What happens? What happens when a Christian sins? Well, first off, our legal standing before God is unchanged. It is unchanged. The fact that we have sin remaining in our lives does not mean that we lose our status as children of God. We keep our adoption. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But some consequences of sin, of sinning for the Christian, for the believer, those that are in Christ, is that our fellowship with God can be disrupted. Christian life can be damaged. And we can cause the Holy Spirit sorrow. And Paul, writing to the Ephesians, talks about putting away falsehood, speaking the truth in love, and not letting corrupting talk come out of one's mouth. He writes in Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul tells us that it is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And when we sin, we cause him sorrow and displeasure with us. Paul says that if Christians yield themselves to sin, they increasingly become slaves of sin. He says that in Romans 6.16. And it also perhaps is worth mentioning at this point that when we do sin, because God loves us, he may chasten us. He may discipline us. But it's good to remember that suffering is not necessarily a correction of specific sins. God can use affliction to strengthen our faith, as James says in chapter 1. He writes there, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So God can use suffering when he manifests himself in his special ways to comfort our souls, filling them with peace and joy 
In James 4.8, James writes there, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so when suffering arrives at our doorsteps, we should seek comfort by going to the Lord, pouring out our soul to him. And as the scriptures do, as they say when we do, God will draw near to us, comforting us. And when we do, we experience the peace that the Apostle Paul writes about in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where he describes it as the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So again, praise God for the gospel. It's not just for unbelievers when they come to salvation, but it's something that we should preach to ourselves. Each and every day we should grow in grounding our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. While as we close this morning, we can see that the biblical witness and testimony to sin is is overwhelming. We see that sin misrepresents the image of God and that it is lawlessness. Sin is deceitful, it's alienating, and it's enslaving. And it's also pervasive. It's affecting all mankind from birth to the grave. And sin has serious consequences. It is not a trivial matter. We see what it does to the society at large. We see the consequences of sin in nations that self-consciously reject God and no longer acknowledge Him. The state is now the lawgiver. We see what that looks like. Rather than restraining evil, they become promoters of evil. And may we, as God's people, understand the times that we live in, like the men of Issachar, knowing how to respond to the times we find ourselves in. While the power of sin is destroyed by those that are in Christ, we still have remaining sin that won't be completely eradicated until Christ this morning. So for those of us who are in Christ, may our souls be filled with joy and be comforted because as we understand sin, those that are in Christ, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And we know that we are observing the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. If you're not a believer today, you're not sure about salvation, I would encourage you to to talk to an elder or someone else here at Southern Hills. Maybe that's someone that invited you to help you understand the gospel more fully and to know with certainty how you can be saved. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture and what it says about sin. We're thankful, Lord, that that as we understand the gospel and what sin is and its effect on us, that we can repent from sin, we can repent from that, and we turn to Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins. He died that we might live, and there is joy in Jesus Christ, Lord, we give you thanks for the word, for the truth of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.